Friends, it's so good to see you this morning. Let's go in our Bibles, would you, to Galatians chapter 1. We're now two weeks into a new study, which we expect will take us through the spring into the summer. The book of Galatians. And if you were not with us last week or haven't had the opportunity, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message, which uh, the... The bulk of the, the first part of the message was just helping us get a good, clear overview of the book, and then took us down through the, the first five verses, which are introductory in nature. Uh, it seems like that's going to be really important the further we get into this, uh, but my charge today is to take you from chapter, verse 6 down to verse 10. When I say it's good to see, it's good to see. I, I, I don't understand how people can go protracted periods of time away from the assembled uh, body. I, uh, sickness kept Bridget and I out from you last week, and it is good to see your. I, it is discernible to me uh, to spend a week away. I just it's evident in my spirit, and so it is good to hear you sing and to see your faces to be together. Galatians chapter one, uh, six through ten. It's a striking passage. Let's look at it together. The scripture says, "I am astonished. I am astonished." that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now speaking Seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. What is a person of rare wisdom who knows how to steward their anger judiciously? I suspect there are people in your world that you see them navigate that wisely. Uh, Solomon in Proverbs 19 says, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Slowness to anger is not only a mark of discretion, but it is an attribute of God's character that is praised in Psalm 103 and other places. And as I mentioned, most of us have family members and friends who hold a fairly amiable temperament and seem how to, to know how to navigate this well. You rarely see their anger. Both of my grandmothers, my maternal grandmother and my uh, paternal grandmother, uh, both of them were sweet, sweet Southern women, and they just carried themselves with warmth. But in very rare occasions would their anger flash. And I... When it did happen, it was arresting. For, for others, expressions of anger were so common, it was like a devalued currency. So it was easily dismissed. But when my 
maternal grandmother who was so warm and kind to us, and my paternal grandmother who always called me Shug. <laughs> when she turned a darting eye of anger toward me, I, I, I can remember thinking, I, I don't know what just happened there, but it's important. Well, it is observably true that the measured, self-controlled, rightly governed, carefully aimed anger of a man or woman of God has its place. Now, this has been distorted. You know that. It has been completely mishandled. But I think what we're seeing here is evidence of that. I heard of a minister, Thomas Starr King, who in the mid-1800s, he was known for his passionate oratory, but he was a small man. Uh, He said one time, this makes me laugh, he said, I normally weigh 120 pounds, but when I'm mad, I weigh a ton. You know what he means by there's a little heaviness in what I'm saying. There's a gravitas to my words. Well, we are in a section of scripture where Paul's anger flashes. In fact, I don't know how I could read this any other way than the tone of appropriate indignation. You know that his pattern uh, in virtually all of his books, as alluded to last week, is to open with a greeting, something very warm, and then this is followed by some civilities. I, you know, I think about you all the time, and when I think about you, just, just can't stop thanking God for you. I pray for you. I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, and uh, hear of your love for all the saints, and there's this warmth and kind of tender entreaty. And he'll say, I remember you in my prayers. Maybe he'd write out his prayer. Well, there's none of that in Galatians. That is completely absent in Galatians. He identifies himself as author. He gives a very brief defense of his apostleship. He gives a benediction. And then he says, I can't even believe what I'm hearing. I cannot believe what I am hearing with my own ears. I am astonished, he said, that you have so quickly deserted the one who called you by grace. This is, this is Paul in his indignation, and he weighs a ton. We may assume that a messenger had brought word to Paul that troublesome teaching, very often happened, had crept into the Galatian church. Paul's response in this text was, I think, really the point of the whole letter, which he'll go on to defend through the body of the epistle, is to confront it directly without a lot of buffering on the front end. We're going to build the message today around a single big idea that has three supporting emphases. So the big idea is, you just sang it, there is one gospel message. There is one gospel message. By the way, that right there is probably going to put us on the fringes of mainline Christianity. That kind of exclusive insistence that there is one way to be reconciled to an offended God, that exclusive message is going to be the most controversial thing in a pluralistic society in which we live. So he is saying here, our big idea There is one gospel message, three emphases. To desert it is astonishing. To distort it is deadly serious. And it is bigger than any messenger. So, 
One gospel message. To desert it is astonishing. To distort it is gravely serious. And it is bigger than any messenger. Let's walk through that together. There is one gospel message, and to desert it is astonishing. It just comes, comes out in full force. I am astonished that you, verse 6, are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Well, in the same way, if my paternal grandmother darted her eyes to, toward me, I might ask the question, what is the issue here? Let's go ahead and ask the question, what is the issue here? And I'll present it in the form of a question. Suppose there is a God, and suppose that that God has blinding purity and perfect justice. Suppose this God cannot abide sin, any sin, your sin or my sin. And further suppose that by your sin you have been made his enemy. Suppose this God of blinding purity, who is a flame of fire, suppose he is so angry at your sin. Is this correctable? Can this be remedied? If these things are true, is there any way to get this fixed? Well, Paul's assertion and the assertion of the Christian church throughout history is yes, and there is only one way. The good news is he has not cut us off forever. The good news is there is a path to be reconciled to an offended God, but there is only one gospel. Well, the particular threat, the issue at play here, and really what drove Paul's insistence uh, towards such precision. The particular threat were the Judaizers, not to be confused with Judaism. Judaism, just the Jewish religion and culture. The Judaizers were those in the early church who sought to impose the Jewish laws and rites on Christian believers. Now, we're going to see this all over the book of Galatians. That was really the specific distortion that was concerning Paul. It was to bring the Jewish laws and rites to bear, adding it to the message of the gospel. So effectively, they insisted for a Gentile to become a Christian, they must first pass through the door of Judaism. They had to pass through the door of the ceremonial law in order to get to Christ. So the obvious example would be circumcision. In fact, that's probably the most dominant example in Paul's letter to uh, the Galatians. But beyond that, it would be enforcing dietary laws, cutting out bacon, cutting out some of the, the things that would not be permitted under the Jewish code, recognizing the various feast days and the holy days that are called for under Moses. So their insistence was... 
absolutely Jesus. Absolutely Jesus. But to get there, you're going to have to go through circumcision. And to get there, you're going to have to go through the Jewish dietary laws. And to get there, you're going to have to honor the feast days, all of the things that carried forward from the Mosaic law. And Paul felt such vigor in correcting that, and I hope that is reflected in the, even the reading of the text today. There is a clear, in this text, if, if not explicit in the language, certainly in the tone, there is a clear you and a they, and us and a them. And they may sound like us, but they are not us. And they may look like us, but they are not us. They may speak with reverence and affection about Jesus, but if they add to the message of the gospel, they are not us. They are they. They are not we, they are them. And what made this so insidious, Matt alluded to this last week, what made this so insidious was the fact that the teachers employed the familiar language of the church. So this was not blatant overturning everything they'd been told. They were, they were affirming the teaching of Paul. Oh, by all means, this is great. However, don't forget circumcision. This, this was a hurdle you must cross. This was a, a threshold you must pass if you are to get to the hope of the gospel. They didn't dismiss Jesus as Savior. They just added to the message. And church, here's the point. We're just going to dive right in. That addition is distortion. If you are saved, if you're among those who could lift your voice today in song and say, by God's grace, the way has been cleared to God, you are saved on the basis of scriptural authority alone, through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. That is the only way to God. That is the only way to God. And to add to it, is to distort it. That addition is distortion. You see that word in verse 11, distort. It's only used three times in the Old Testament. It literally could be translated to reverse or to flip. Paul is saying they want to they turn the whole thing upside down. You add this practice, regardless of how innocuous it may seem, you add this practice, you've made something different. You've turned the whole thing upside down. Distorting is perverting. And that is why we must insist on absolute purity as it relates to the gospel message. There is not room for tweaks and adaptations and Inordinate emphases in different... We have got to insist on absolute purity as it relates to the gospel message. Listen, there are varied opinions on in a whole range of theological matters within this room, and we can have vigorous and animated and delightful debate over it. We've got to be together on this. We have got to be absolutely together on the gospel. If there is a God, 
if he is a God of blinding purity, if I have offended him by my sin, and he is so angry, and there is only one way to be reconciled to the God whose law I defied, we got to get that right. We got to get that right. I've eaten Bridget's chili for 33 years. Not solid. Periodically, I've eaten it. <clears throat> it's my favorite. If, if, there, if there's chili next door, I'm going to look and see, do I recognize that crock pot? Because I have become a little bit of a snob on this area. I, hers is my favorite. It's been my favorite. Still is my favorite. And occasionally she'll say, you know, I found something come through on Pinterest or I saw something in a book. I think I might try it. Bridget, don't try it. I've, I feel very strongly on this. I, it's fine just like it is. Don't monkey with it. It is what's in it and what's not in it that makes it it. Right? It's what's in it and what's not in it that makes it it. You, you take something out, it's not it. You put something in, it's not it. A weak illustration. The gospel was not meant to be edited and tampered with. It, the, the, the simple, pure message of the gospel, it must be prominent. And to add something to the gospel is not to augment it. And that is precisely what Paul is laboring to correct. And he's going to do this all the way through the book. And I, I think he's going to build his case masterfully under the inspiration of the Spirit. But, but to add something to the gospel is not to augment it. It's to make it something other than what it is. That's why the reformers were so insistent on the solas of the Those five alone statements. The last song we sang today is a, is a poetic affirmation of solus Christus. It is in Christ alone that my hope is found. Sola Scriptura, solus Christus. Sola fide, sola gratia, sola, uh, uh, sola deo gloria. On the basis of scriptural authority alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. It, it is applied by faith. It's not faith that saves us, but it is, it, that is the mechanism by which that grace reaches our dead hearts. It is faith alone in Christ alone, and it is to the glory of God alone. Well, Paul's astonished. He's like, I, can't even, I, can't even, I, can't, I cannot believe how quickly, but depending on the timeline, maybe within a year of his departure, this had already started to take root in Galatia and the surrounding cities. And I think the thing that is striking in part is because his trip to Galatia was an absolute success. If you, if you read Acts 13 and 14, it might be helpful as we're going through this book to kind of go back and remember this visit that Paul made to that region. Paul and Barnabas go into the synagogue. They teach, and apparently already immediately, the meeting breaks up. A huge influx of Jews and devout converts to Jerusalem begin to follow them. When the message is preached to the Gentiles, their response, I love this, Acts, Acts 13 verse 48, their response is terrific. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed and the word of the Lord was spreading 
through the whole region. This continues in, in chapter 14. Throughout that region, Iconium and Derby, when they would show up with this message, it was so glorious. It was so glorious that they said they were treated like gods. And here Paul is, he's, he, he's, he's left them, and somebody shows up with a message. He says, Paul, I don't know how to tell you this, but the Judaizers have come in. They're teaching a completely different gospel than what you've taught. How quickly. When this repackaging of an old idea came along, they just folded like a cheap suit. How quickly they had turned from the message they'd been given. The Judaizers added behaviors and practices to the gospel, making it another gospel, which is no gospel. Question. Is, is it right to expect changed behavior among Christians? It is absolutely right, and it is absolutely necessary. I think there's a, a Christian talks different than an unbeliever. A, a Christian's more generous than an unbeliever. A Christian prioritizes holiness. There are things they don't do with their eyes. There are things they don't do with their mouth. Is it right to expect changed behavior from a believer? It is absolutely right and it is absolutely necessary. But you are not saved by what you do. You are not saved by what you do. So you put these noble behaviors out there, generosity, love, tenderness, kindness, uh, holiness, pure living. If you push that forward as the basis for your acceptance, that will not hold. That will implode under your feet. Is it right to expect this range of behaviors? By all means. But they are responsive to grace. They do not ground your hope. You are not saved by what you do. We are saved by grace. I, I regularly point to B.B. Warfield's great definition of grace. Grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. We receive salvation as a gift, it is not on the basis of works at all. Circumcision, dietary laws, honoring the Mosaic Code, that does nothing to move you one inch closer to grace. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the basis of scriptural authority alone, and to the glory of God alone. We receive it as a gift. Now, that's not a particularly flattering message, is it? I can understand why this would get traction. I can understand why people would attach to it. Because this message, a message that is entirely of grace, it puts us in our place. It says, look, I, I bring nothing. I'm showing up empty-handed. I am a broke man, and if you don't save me, I don't get saved. If you don't come to my aid, I am sunk. That is what the true gospel, it is a gift. It is received at no cost from me. Our, the response, it, the, uh, 
the, the life that succeeds that is costly, but we receive it as a gift. Let's think about this week. If you and I, uh, gentlemen, if we've, we've had meals out, there's a high probability that we have eaten at Chick-fil-A together because we're children of the light and that's what we do. So we're, we, and when I, uh, so if I've met you there, tell you this is probably where it has been. And I know that for $5.95, maybe a little more may have changed depending on whether or not you get a multi-grain bun. You can get a number one, extra pickles are free. The, um, and when I receive that, when I pay, and I give that, I'm happy to do it. And when they give me that meal, is that grace? No, that, that's just a, we're just processing a transaction there. But one day a year, one day a year, if I go in there and I want a one, they'll give it to me and not cost me any money. One day a year. Cow Appreciation Day. And so I can order the same thing I would ordinarily pay six, seven dollars for. And they're not going to ask me for nothing. I just have to dress up like a cow. <laughs> and, and don't you laugh because I've seen pictures of you people. And <laughs> question. They give it to me. Don't charge me for it. Is that grace? Careful. Careful. No. Because I got to forfeit my dignity. <laughs> For a chicken sandwich, I have to dress like a cow. I have to do something. They're going to they're gonna give me it, and they're not going to charge me money for it. But I'm doing something. That's not how grace operates. It is all of grace. It is the pure, lavish generosity of a god a wash in mercy. And that's the best news I've ever heard. I'm astonished, he said. I'm astonished that you have so quickly turned. This is a wealthy heiress, a Kennedy or a Vanderbilt or a Hearst, forfeiting her riches because she got a hopeful email from a Nigerian prince. This is the church abandoning the one eternal true for a counterfeit, a gospel that is no gospel. The word he uses here is a rich word, metatithemai. This, this is not a philosophical tweak. This is a defection. This is treacherous. This is treasonous. I can't believe you're deserting the one who called you by grace. This is not a subtle adaptation of a body of doctrines. The abandonment is particularly egregious because it is done in the face of kindness. The language is personal. You see in the text there that this defection is not the desertion of a bank of ideas or a body of truths. It is the desertion of a person. Do you see that in the text? I'm astonished that you have so quickly deserted him who called you. The, the message of the gospel and the person of Christ were so irrevocably linked that to speak the gospel was to speak Christ. And you have turned not from a collection of things, you've turned from the one who called you by grace. 
you know that legalism is easily, easy to sell. By the way, that, that word legalism is probably required. I, I think technically legalism, sometimes we throw that word at anybody who holds a little higher standard than you do. That's not what we're talking about, legalism. Legalism is attaching merit, saving merit, to something you do or don't do. That's it. And it's easy to sell because it seizes on that noble impulse of principled people to pay their own way, forge their own path, and cover their own debts. That's not how grace works. You show up, you show up broke, you show up empty-handed. We're all a bunch of charity cases. We come needy, bringing nothing but our sin. So even something as minor as the procedure of circumcision, that adds nothing to grace. It actually mangles it. It distorts it when there is merit attached to it. My systematic professor, Douglas Kelly, said, if you want to make people mad, preach the law. If you want to make people really, really mad, preach grace. Because this puts us in our place. It says, I got a problem I can't fix. And if God doesn't save me, I'm not saved. Well, there's one gospel message. And to desert it is astonishing. Secondly, there is one gospel message, and to distort it is gravely serious. And I'm reading this to you, I'm reading it to you, and I'm going to preach it, but this is strikingly, I mean, this is, this is I would be uncomfortable saying this if, if this were not inscripturated truth. Paul says, if we, me and Barnabas, the ones who were there a few months ago, if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. You said, now hang on, Ryan, does that sound like what I think he's saying? That is precisely what he's saying. If you insist on leading people away from the one pure gospel, I'm going to put it frank, may you die and go to hell. May the curse of God bury you. And as if he thought, I wonder if, they, if somebody's reading that. Did Paul actually say that? Then he repeats it right there. In case, for the people in the back, in case you didn't hear it, as I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Can you imagine anything more serious than that? Listen, as a church, as members of the church, as people charged with the care of the church, there is no higher priority, none, nothing even close, than holding a pure gospel. We have got to get this right, and we cannot stray an inch. We can't, we can't move up again. We have got to provide here what you have got to insist upon from anyone who occupies this pulpit. And if this begins to not happen, you should confront it vigorously 
I mean confront it vigorously. If you hear from this pulpit a message that does not fit with the biblical gospel, it has to be confronted. Paul says, if anybody shows up and they're preaching something contrary to what you heard, let them die and let them go to hell. Verse 9 is indicative. It's not hypothetical. I mean, he's saying, I'm saying, if anyone is preaching, if this is happening right now, if, he is, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. Let's just back out of the preaching duty for a moment and just ask, what is your heart after when it comes to the gathered assembly? What? Maybe more particularly, why are you here? There, there are a lot of ways to get this wrong. What is the gospel that you're hoping for? What is the good news that your heart is attached to? Why are you here? Maybe you say, you know what, Ronnie, I, I see regular church attendance as an honorable practice, and I want to be honorable. And so I, I'll attach myself to this because I think it's, it's, this is what good people do. Or I, I look at some of these families. These are sweet families. I want to honor them. I, family matters to me. And so I, I, want, to, I want to build a, a family like some of what I see. So I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to come here because this is something I hope to see achieve, achieved in my home. I think church is a great way to connect with people. I don't want to be lonesome. So I, this is a great place for me to meet friends and connect to a community. Is that what you're hoping for? You might say, well, here we find a good, specific, practical, achievable path to morality. I see a lot out there that bothers me. I want to I wanna be a moral man or a woman. And this is a good place to learn how to order my life. And I'm going to say all of those things are great in their place. That is not what we are about. It is not the principal message. It needn't be. It mustn't be. You know, the message of the gospel that Christ died once, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The gain of the gospel is that we are brought to God. That is what we aspire to and need. This is all about how sinners are made righteous before God. There's one gospel message. To desert it is astonishing. It is astonishing to Distort it is gravely serious. And there's one gospel message, and it is bigger than any one messenger. Even Paul's saying, look, I, if, if I mangle this, if I get this wrong, and I persist in preaching an errant gospel, may that curse abide on my own head. He goes further. It's kind of interesting departure in verse 6. For am I now seeking the approval? Did I say six? Ten? Uh, verse ten. For I am, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And it, it seems that last phrase is kind of key to understanding the entire verse. If my aspiration is to serve the Lord Jesus then I cannot be driven by pulls and appreciation. 
If I'm still trying to please man, I would not be the servant of Christ. A couple of explanations for this. One, he could be saying, look, just look back at the anathemas of verse 8 and verse 9 and ask yourself, does this sound like a man who's staying up at night wondering what people are thinking about him? It doesn't sound like a man who's particularly troubled by a little heat. That would be one possibility. Another possibility is that these Judaizers were accusing Paul of presenting a message that was a little too good out of a desire to please and draw a crowd. So maybe the Judaizers who were pressing on kind of an insistence on rigid application of the law, and when Paul comes in here and says, hey, that's not necessary. You you, you can dispense with all of that. Circumcision is nothing. Maybe the accusation of the Judaizers is, well, he's just saying something like people want to hear. If I'm, in the event that there were people who were reluctant, maybe, maybe there were guys out there who said, is, is there an option that doesn't require surgery? I mean, if, if you're trying to please a, a crowd, yeah, yeah, you don't have to worry about that. That, that might have been the accusation. In either case, he wanted to make plain this truth. I'm a servant of Christ. My duty is to present The gospel as I received it from God. Nothing more, nothing less. It's noteworthy that he said, if if I were still trying to please man, it's interesting, he said, if I were still trying to please man. So he must have known something about that experience. He wasn't completely, you know, we all know that, the, the, the pressure of man pleasing. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I know what it is to be driven by fear of man. But he said, if I, get, if, if, I, if I allow that to govern my message, if I allow that to direct what I say and don't say, if that, if that causes me to temper in a way that would be palatable to the people I'm talking to, then I'm not a servant of Christ. And this message is bigger than the messenger. Any messenger. We are stewards of the message, church. We are stewards of the message. We are not its author, and we are not its subject. The message is bigger than any one of us. So he just pushes it right out there. The gospel is primary. Hear it again. This is the big idea. We're going to hear it all through the book. There is one way. To be reconciled to the Father. Let me just make a couple of applications, a few concluding comments, then we'll go to the table. A couple of points of application before we close. First is this Church, we want to learn to steward our indignation wisely. Steward your indignation wisely. We live in a time and a culture where outrage is ubiquitous. We're just, I mean, just, just a kind of a a quick-tempered irritability that it's a problem to be incapable of indignation. But it is likewise a problem to be awash in indignation perpetually. My encouragement to you is to invest your passion where you see Scripture's emphasis. Be passionate where Scripture is passionate and less passionate where scriptures are not passionate. So, 
as it relates to the gospel, nothing matters more. If there exists a God, if that God is a God of blinding purity, if we have transgressed the law of a good God and abide under penalty, nothing matters more than getting the remedy right. So reserve gospel-level passion for gospel-level issues. If you feel similar outrage over gospel distortion and whatever political controversy is dominating the news these days, it's hard to imagine that your passions are scripturally governed. So, steward your indignation. This, this ought to matter to you. This ought to matter to you. If, if the gospel is being monkeyed with, that, that ought to give rise to something deep and visceral in the heart of the people of God. Second application, so obvious. Know, believe, and boldly speak the simple gospel message. you got to know it, you got to believe it, and you've got to speak it confidently, this simple gospel message. You need to know it. Every, every, listen, every Christian, certainly every member at Basswood, should be able to articulate the gospel in 60 seconds or less. This is not a complex message. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said toward the end of his life, all the theology I need as a dying man is that Christ died for my sins. That's not so bad. That's a pretty good gospel summary. Listen, there is enough condensed gospel truth in John 3, 16 to, to bring a man or woman from death to life. But you should be able to give a good, cogent, simple explanation of the gospel, a good outline like creation, fall, Redemption, consummation. Yeah, that, that, I should put that in my notes. A good, good outline like that can help you walk through the simple gospel message. Know, believe, and boldly speak the simple gospel message. And it ought to pepper our conversations all the time, including when we eat lunch together here in just a little bit. This is the message that will save your sons and daughters. This is, this is the message that we carry to the nations. This is what gets us this is why we sing loud. This is, why we, this is why we sell things and get on planes and relocate to the tribes. This, this simple message. So I just want us to close out our time before we come to the table just hearing it spoken again. I love to tell the story. For those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Unbelievers, find your life here. Find your life here. Flee to Christ. This is the only way to God. This is the only message that will save you from hell. And believers, wrap yourself up in it again. And delight in it as we prepare to commune. Let's just hear the gospel again, shall we? We never assume when we use that language gospel that we're using the same dictionary. Gospel is not a type of music. It's not a synonym for evangelicalism. The gospel is the glad proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel does not begin with your need. 
begins with a God who has no needs, who is creator and sovereign over all. And as part of his creation, as the crowning accomplishment of that event, he made man in his own image and in his own likeness. He gave them a simple law. He established a holy law which was promptly defied and set creation into a tailspin. It was cataclysmic. It's felt today. You've already felt today the effect of that rebel act. The most pertinent and immediate concern for you and for me is that 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 has left us with a disposition against God. You are a sinner by nature and by choice. Just like your mom and daddy and their mom and daddy and their mom and daddy. As sinners, we are subject to the just penalty of death. Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and so death passed upon all men because all have sinned. What I said a moment ago is true. There is a God. He is a God of blinding purity. He has made a law and we transgressed it. And this you cannot fix. Circumcision can't fix it. Tweaking your diet can't fix it. Honoring a yearly calendar can't fix it. You cannot fix this. And if you could, you wouldn't. We are all presented in Scripture as neither willing nor able to reconcile ourselves to God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we have a fixed defiance. Our disposition is antagonistic by God, by our very nature. We are neither willing nor able to fix this problem. In our natural state, we do not want him. We see him, we just don't want him. So if we are saved, he will have to save us. But the good news is, way back in Eden, just, just a couple of pages into the book, God demonstrated his mercy by promising a deliverer who would set right what was broken in God's creation, would clear the way to God. The seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. And the long meandering story of humanity, our preservation through the flood, the establishment of a people through Abraham, the giving of the law through Moses, the formation of a monarchy through David, that whole meandering long story climaxes with what we spent weeks celebrating just a few weeks ago. The arrival of the Lord Jesus. Truly God, truly man. He did not cut us. He did not cut us off forever. In our sin, God moved toward us in mercy. By sending his son, the Lord Jesus. In his humanity, he lived the life that we should have lived, but couldn't. 
perfect, precise obedience to the law of God in every regard. This was done to provide a representative obedience that could stand in the place of our brokenness so that our record is not the one we hide behind, but Jesus' record. His obedience speaks for us. God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He met the demands of the law with precision and then in His own body, He absorbed the just fury of an incensed God that should have fallen to us because we defied Him. He not only lived the life we should have lived, He died the death that we should have died. And in His death, He met the demands of holy justice and completely exhausted the wrath of God that hovered over you so that, child of God, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None. None. In his death, he did not say, I've done the hard part. Now just honor the dietary codes, submit to circumcision, Recognize the feast days. He did not say it's practically accomplished. He said, I'm thirsty because I want to say something really loud and I'm parched. So give me something to drink. And he took a drink and the Bible says with a really loud voice, it is finished. Finished. You don't add anything to that. You don't add anything to that. It is finished on the cross. And now he says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. You take your yoke upon me and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly. And you will find rest for your souls. Come to Him. That's the call of the Gospel. Come to Him. Turning from the sin you've held, turning from all the alternative Gospels, turning from everything you ever thought was going to reconcile you to God other than Jesus, and resting your hopes there. Turn to Christ. Christ alone. Rest all your hopes in Him. And it is that simple act. It's miraculous. It's a miraculous. Listen, you're going to have to be born again. Something's going to have to happen in your dead heart. But if, 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 if God awakens in your dead heart, desires for Jesus, move toward Him. Come to Him. And as you turn to Him, to Christ alone, resting all your hopes in Him, Coming empty-handed, B-R-O-K-E, completely broke. I got nothing that I bring other than my own sin. It is that simple act 
that unites you to Christ, clears your guilt, brings you into his adopted family, and he will never let you go. It's the best news I've ever heard. We opened worship with a bold declaration. Let's just hear the words again. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And when darkness seems to veil his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, and his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless. To stand before his throne. Father, guard that we would never, never stray from that message. God, we pray, even the most Severe language we see in this text. I pray that you will do whatever necessary to vindicate the purity and the prominence of the gospel message. Lord, you subdue in us every impulse that might cause us to think we can make God happy with us by our behavior. Father, I pray that we would see the irreverence of that, the solemnity, the severity of that, and throw ourselves on Christ, our only hope in life and in death. And Lord, I pray that even these next moments we have together would just be again another opportunity to hold this marvelous truth before us, that we would find a home there, that it would mark our thinking, our behavior, our very lives. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.